Do you have a tricky work problem that you need to solve? I have a great podcast recommendation for you featuring a pair of expert women. Whether you're just starting your career or a seasoned professional, check out Fixable, a podcast from TED. Hosted by Harvard professor Frances Fry and her wife, leadership coach Ann Morris, the brilliant duo provide honest, actionable advice to help you navigate everything from a gaslighting manager to returning to work after parental leave. They'll leave you feeling empowered and ready to act. Listen to Fixable wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by The Newsworthy, my favorite upbeat daily news podcast by Erica Mandy that's sure to leave you well-informed of all the day's events in less than 10 minutes. Check out The Newsworthy now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Bossed Up, the podcast, episode 34. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. I often close this podcast with a reminder to pursue your purpose, because living a purpose-centered life is something I truly believe helps you feel engaged in and connected to the world around you. But that doesn't mean we all can expect a paycheck from pursuing our purpose or, quote, following our passion, as that tired, overly used expression goes. As we continue this month's focus on creating a career with impact and interviewing women in the public sector, today's episode provides some real talk. Pursuing an impactful career path is not easy. I mean, if you think about it, life in the public sector is called public service for a reason. We too often get jaded thinking about politicians as these sleazy, money-hungry power brokers, when in reality, a lot of folks in the public sector look a lot more like characters on Parks and Recreation, earnest people who want to do right by our country, especially in the face of the many challenges we're now facing here and abroad. I've always been something of an unbridled optimist and a diehard patriot which isn't always easy to do in light of some of the horrific things that are happening in our country right now. But what makes me most proud of America, the land of opportunity, is that when we are faced with the harsh realities of a moment in our history when many folks want to limit who that opportunity is for, want to turn inwards with fear instead of remaining open with love, we're seeing a huge tidal wave of good people running for office to change that. And by good people, I'm talking about women, by the way. As we've covered already, this is going to be a groundbreaking year for women pursuing elected office. And that's really what I want to think about today. But even if you are never planning to run for office of any kind, I want you to think about this question today. What sacrifice are you willing to make to have a greater impact on the world beyond you? What power or privilege do you have or need to pursue to be in a position to have the greater impact you'd want to see in your lifetime? Oftentimes, we get so caught up on the achievement track of always striving for more, always climbing that ladder, always hustling on that career trajectory, only to realize that what might actually fulfill us isn't necessarily another accolade or promotion, but rather being part of creating a better world. Today's listener-submitted career conundrum is about just that, which we'll hear right after this quick break. 
Do you work in the nonprofit sector but want to run your organization more like a business? Well, Social Impact 360 is offering a new course specifically for nonprofit professionals to affordably apply business skills and methodologies to their daily work. You'll become more efficient, effective, and focused on continuous improvement in the services you provide. Save $50 off your registration with code BOSSEDUP at checkout at socialimpact360.org slash class. I am really struggling with a boxed-up conundrum right now, which is that I advanced really quickly in my field, and by the time I was 30, I was already um, the leader of a business. And now I'm trying to decide if that's the feeling for me or if I should take a step back into another role that is objectively a step back down to middle management but might have more of the work that I'm passionate about. So I'm trying to decide whether my career should keep going in a linear fashion and and I should only take roles that are growing from where I am now or if I should um, take something that might feel like a step back but might be better for my soul and um, get me some different skills as well. To help me break this excellent question down, I'm excited to be joined by Lauren Underwood, candidate for U.S. Congress in Illinois' 14th House District. She's a registered nurse with hands-on experience when it comes to fixing our healthcare industry. She was appointed by President Obama as a senior advisor to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services to help communities prevent, prepare for, and respond to disasters, bioterrorist threats, and public health emergencies, as well as implement the Affordable Care Act. She's the first Black woman to ever run in this predominantly white district, which includes Lauren's hometown of Naperville. Lauren's graciously taken some time out of her busy campaign schedule to hop on the pod with us today. So Lauren, thanks so much for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you for having me. It's a real treat. So Lauren, there's so many things I want to ask you about. You're running for Congress in Illinois in the 14th district, and you are an interesting candidate for that area. But before we dive into what makes your candidacy so special and interesting, take me back. I'd love to learn more about how you started your career in the nursing field, which is something very near and dear to my heart. My mom's a nurse herself. She has been for 30 plus years. And I'd love to know, how did you first get into nursing and and what inspired your career? Sure. So the summer after third grade, uh, a new wave pool opened in my hometown of Naperville. And I was just so excited. Uh, But my mother would not let me go to the wave pool unless I had taken swimming lessons. And so that was the summer that we Jumped, my sister and I jumped in to the pool and started to formally learn how to swim. And, you know, was a master backstroker, you know, crushed the freestyle. And then came the day that we had to learn how to tread water. And I was terrified because to, in order to tread water, you have to uh, be in the deep end of the pool. You can't do it on the four foot side of the pool. And so I was nervous all day, get into the pool at swim lessons and apparently was hysterical and disruptive and ended up uh, getting pulled out. But I was crying. My heart was racing and it literally never slowed down. So my dad pulled me out of the pool. We go to the doctor's office, still racing. Go to the emergency department, still racing. Ended up getting diagnosed with a heart condition. It's called supraventricular tachycardia. And what it means is I have a rapid heart rate. And so about quarterly, I would travel to my pediatric cardiologist for checkups and adjustments uh, to my treatment. 
and ended up being really inspired by those providers who offer great medical care um, and really decided that I wanted to have a career of my own where I could help people have healthy lives. And so over time, uh, that translated into public health and into nursing. Um, after taking chemistry in high school, I decided I didn't want to take variations of that <laughs> for the next 10 years. And so I really you know, plugged in to public health, the idea that you could help populations improve their health and well-being. And I saw nursing as a great way to get into that line of work. And so I ended up going to the University of Michigan. And my first semester freshman year, there was this course, Policy and Politics in Nursing and Healthcare, where I realized that this whole segment of public health called health policy existed where I combined my interest in local politics. I had served on a local board in my town of Naperville in high school. I was on the Fair Housing Commission for two terms. At 16 and 17 years old, so I could combine that interest in policymaking with my healthcare interests. And from that point forward, I knew I had found uh, where I would spend my career. You also spent some time working on behalf of the Obama administration. Can you tell us how you made that leap from, from solely focusing on nursing to really getting into the D.C. political scene? Sure. So in college, I interned for Senator Obama while my colleagues were on Mother Baby and working in ICUs. Um, I interned at the Centers for Disease Control. And so when I went um, right after college, I went to graduate school, got a master's in public health, got a master's in nursing. And then my first job really outside of graduate school was working for the federal government. I um, did a really brief stint at a private consulting firm, but then the Affordable Care Act passed. So I began working to implement the Affordable Care Act at the federal level. I was a career federal employee for four and a half years, worked on private insurance reform, healthcare quality, and the Medicare program, preventive services, those free screenings, uh, vaccines, um, and contraceptive coverage that the Trump team has been trying to roll back. Then in 2014, the week that Mr. Duncan had Ebola in Dallas, I got a call asking if I wanted to join the president's team and help them with the Ebola response. And so I said yes. Um, and did that work. We did Ebola, Zika, the mosquito illness, the water crisis in Flint. We worked on natural disasters like wildfires and hurricanes, and then um, bioterrorism threats like smallpox and anthrax. So really did that work um, until the end of the Obama administration in 2017. Wow. So that sounds like a combination of care work, which is so important, so labor intensive, and so undervalued in our economy still. Combined with this rapid response kind of uh, sacrifice that you've made to really be there on the front lines when it came to public health crises. Now, that's something I'm really intrigued by because the whole concept of burnout, which is something I talk a lot about, having experienced a bout of it in my early 20s myself, it was actually originally a term that was reserved for folks who work in those caring industries, folks on the front lines first responders, nurses, doctors, caregivers. Do you feel like at any point along the way you faced any of those kinds of challenges or how did you how did you maintain your motivation by pursuing your passions in the face of what I'm guessing were some challenging times there? Can you tell us about that? When I first got my job at the federal government, I walked in on my first day and the assistant said, "Baby, you've made it. You sit right here in this <laughs> office." And for the next 35 years, and you can retire. And she meant it as a compliment. 
Um, I was 23 years old, had an office that overlooked the Capitol, had this big portfolio to help roll out this um, landmark legislation that was transforming our healthcare system. So in many ways, I might have made it. But, you know, I'm a millennial. I was not interested in sitting in any one chair for 35 years. And so I was slightly yeah. horrified, right? And so I realized that I was going to need to take my professional development, my professional growth into my own hands. Um, and with that realization at the very beginning, it really empowered me to sort of find those other opportunities that would, yes, it, uh, give me the opportunity to grow and expand, um, not just go deep in a portfolio area, but really expand my leadership skills, but then also uh, cultivate other interests. And so as a federal employee, there's a lot of limitations on what you can do in terms of outside activities, outside employment. But I was intentional in setting those goals. So I continued to have a clinical practice um, where I would work part time using uh, my nursing license. Um, I enrolled in a variety of professional leadership development programs, things that uh, encouraged women to not only run for office, but taught us how to be great leaders and managers. Um, and so really was uh, focused on that. But there was a point to your question where I was sort of like, is this it for me? Um, and I had the opportunity to either enroll in a doctoral program in nursing, get my PhD, or take on a, a teaching opportunity where I would have the chance to be an adjunct faculty member. And so I ultimately decided to become that faculty member. And I found it so rewarding, so enriching. And it was something that enabled me to, yes, make some money on the side, but also was stimulating in a way that I did not find that type of stimulation for my job at the time. It forced me to have to rely on facts, not opinion. Um, it forced me to learn how to talk about these issues that I cared so deeply about. It gave me a skill set that I've drawn on now that I am running for Congress. Being a teacher taught me so much <laughs> and enabled me to be a better candidate. That's fantastic. And it's such good advice for Larkin to think about maybe before she takes herself off of this linear path or climbing this, this corporate ladder that she's on, she can take time outside of work to experiment with pursuing her passion in a part-time basis. Yes. Sounds to me like you didn't make the leap out of your government job, but you were experimenting with ways to keep your passion engaged, keep your motivation high. And actually, you know, a misconception about burnout is that burnout is always and only due from too much work. When in fact, burnout can also strike because the work you're doing just doesn't fulfill your purpose or you're not getting any sense of purpose from anywhere else in your life. So for folks who are starting to feel that kind of milieu or the millennial itch <laughs> to maybe bounce, I always encourage people to try to experiment with pursuing your passions extracurricularly. I think that the side hustle is something that, you know, particularly millennials, we pursue for economic reasons. And, right. and I just always encourage folks to think about that side hustle as an opportunity to round out your professional experience. Like in my instance, I had a license that I was not using. I had a clinical license that I was not using in my full-time job, right? And so in order to be able to be eligible for renewals and the like, I needed that side hustle to be able to continue to keep my skills sharp. Right. And so it, it served a real purpose um, and, and it opened me up to the opportunities outside of my 40 hours a week at my, my traditional full time job. And so I think that instead of just pursuing a side hustle for economic reasons, think about it more broadly. And I know you said that, but 
But I really think that a lot of people um, might just take the first part-time job that they offer or they'll rely on maybe, you know, service-oriented jobs that they may have done in college or early in their careers uh, when they have that economic need. But at certain points in your career, there might be an opportunity to do a little freelance on the side or, or to start a new business and, and spend a little bit of time in that and just see what happens. Um, and I really encourage that. I love that. And it's a good reminder that success, which I'm putting in air quotes here, doesn't always mean taking a financial leap forward. Sometimes if you really want to experiment with a career change or starting a business or just pursuing a new venture that you want to give yourself permission to risk doing, especially if you're in a very privileged position to economically be able to make that choice, you know, just because you're taking a pay cut doesn't mean you're failing, doesn't mean you're moving backwards, despite what our society will tell you. And so when I decided to run for Congress, um, this is something that doesn't really get spoken about much. I'm 31 years old. I decided to run at 30. The idea that I could just leave my job and jump into a congressional race for about two years without pay is something that is out of reach largely for a lot of millennials, right? And so I took that same approach that I had with my side hustle early in my career when I decided to become an adjunct faculty with my campaign, meaning I worked full-time for the majority of my primary campaign. And that was just an economic reality of being a millennial running for office. And so we can do both, but we have to have that hustling spirit. And I think that we do have it. I mean, this is a bossed up podcast, right? And so, so we are naturally hustling and grinding. And so don't let that conventional wisdom keep us from pursuing our passion and pursuing these great opportunities um, just because the economics of it may not work out on first glance. So I want to talk about what motivated you to run, right? You're from Naperville, Illinois, which is in your district. And I hear that there was a specific town hall where the former representative, or I should say the current representative of the district, which, by the way, has voted predominantly Republican over the past few decades, save for the Obama era, when he went back on a promise. Can you tell me about why that was so personal to you and why that help solidify your decision to throw your hat into this ring, even though economically it was going to be a challenge. Sure. So in the 2000s, the Illinois 14th district was represented by the Speaker of the House. His name was Denny Hastert. So when the Democrats reclaimed the majority, he resigned. A Democrat won, served for a year and a half, and voted for the Affordable Care Act, and then lost to this Tea Party Republican in the rise of that whole wave in the 2010 elections. And so that's who I'm running against. So last spring, my opponent, our congressman, uh, had his one and only public event of the entire year. It was this question and answer session hosted by the League of Women Voters. So to call it a town hall is actually being overly generous because we weren't allowed to engage with him directly. We had to submit questions through a moderator. And that night he made a promise. He said he was only going to support a version of Obamacare repeal that let people with pre-existing conditions keep their health care coverage. And so as a nurse... I know how critical it is for people to have access to medications and procedures that they need it, particularly if they have a chronic illness. I work to implement the Affordable Care Act. So I've read the law and I believe in it and I know that we can fix what didn't work. And like so many, I have this heart condition that I shared with you, right? So this became really personal to me because under the repeal scenarios, I wouldn't be able to get coverage. So when he made that promise, I believed him. And then he went and voted for the American Health Care Act 
the version of repeal that did the opposite. It made it cost prohibitive for people like me to get coverage. And I was really upset. And I started really thinking about, you know, what was my responsibility in this larger time of where we have people marching for the first time, forming groups for the first time, the rise of the yeah. resistance. And I decided, you know what, it's on, I'm running. There were no other women running against him. Um, and our community had been one of these targeted districts by the Democratic Party nationally as they worked to take back the House of Representatives. And so I decided to jump in and run. And you crushed it in the primary with 60% of the vote. Congratulations, back in March. And just to reiterate how significant your candidacy is, you are a young woman and the only woman running in this race and the only person of color running in this race. Do I have that right? Yes. My district has never elected a woman to Congress. It has only elected middle-aged white men. So that's part of, to me, what's so inspiring about this year, whether you want to call it the resistance or Time's Up movement or the Me Too movement or just a backlash to the atrocities that we've seen from the Trump administration. This month, we're celebrating very patriotically on the pod how many incredible women with really different backgrounds across the country have done what you're doing, which is being audacious about what we can accomplish. So tell us a little bit about your plans. Why are you qualified to be in Congress? What are you focusing on when it comes to your candidacy in the next critical few months? So right now we have the unbelievable opportunity to build a small army in our community and door knock in all these little small towns. Listen, our district is half rural, half suburban. And so we have farmers who told us, no Democrat has knocked on my door in 10 years. So what does that wow. mean? That means we have to show up and literally knock every door, have these conversations and do the work on the ground. And so that's what we're committed to doing, building a team that can be as robust to cover these 1,500 square miles to talk with everyone about issues uh, regarding healthcare affordability and the tax plan. We talk about gun violence prevention. We talk about climate change. There's so much that quality public schools and have these conversations one-on-one -on -one and literally showing up in a way that my opponent's not willing to. Um, and so I think that that is really part of what's so special, that's part of the magic, um, is that folks have been feeling behind and left out of so many of the conversations, so many of the improvements, so much of the growth that our country has experienced. And so by literally showing up and hearing from them directly, we're going to be able to make this change. I love it. And I'm so inspired by your candidacy, especially because the more nurses and caregivers and professors and people with a diverse background, whether it's teaching or the kind of work that you did for the federal government, I think we need more folks, especially women from the caring industries to help shape our public policy. Maybe it'll be a little more caring for all Americans, if that's the case. Representation matters. We see it in the policies that are passed every day. When the House passed Trump Care, and there was that celebration on the White House lawn, and you might remember the image, it was Donald Trump and all these middle-aged white men joyously celebrating, taking away health care from the American people. You couldn't find a woman's face in the crowd. Right. The right. same image when they try to restrict our reproductive rights, the same image when they try to talk about uh, criminal justice reform, and you don't see any people of color and they don't consult with communities of color. And, and it's just it's so challenging when we do not have a seat at the table. And yet we're qualified women, particularly in my community, run every organization. We lead every PTA, the church groups, 
the neighborhood associations, we have led in every aspect of community life, but for whatever reason, haven't stepped forward to actually become candidates prior to this year. But something beautiful right. has happened in my district. We have seen women who've come to our campaigns as volunteers or as group leaders who've endorsed us and now are stepping forward to run for office themselves. And so it's this domino effect where one woman sets up to lead, others see, hey, it's possible I do the same. So now we have women running for county board, women running for state rep that were volunteers on our campaign. And so I'm so proud um, and they're going to win. And so, yeah. so that's how we change the system. I love it. Yeah. And research shows that the more women who run, the less salient gender becomes in identity politics, right? In making that decision based on gender. So we're still up against so much unconscious bias. What has it been like on the campaign trail when it comes to running into gender or racial bias or ageism? You know, I was I was expecting a lot of racism in the campaign. I was sort of steeled and ready for it. But I encountered was sexism and misogyny in a way I had never had experience before because I spent my career in this female-dominated profession. All of my bosses for the majority of my career have been women, these dynamic, smart, powerful women, and all the way up the vertical, right? And so for the first time, I had people approaching me with like physical threats, physically trying to intimidate me for having the audacity to want to run for office and challenge the patriarchy. And I didn't recognize it for what it was. I didn't have a word for it. And so once I identified it as sexism, or again, when, that, when those threats came with it as misogyny, then I started to be able to deal with it better. And so I literally had people while door knocking invade my physical space for being wow. audacious enough to declare my candidacy for public office. And that is not something I've ever experienced before. And so it's real. <laughs> That's all I can say. It's real, yeah. but it does not represent the views of the majority of Americans. Right. We're so grateful for candidates like you who are daring to lead anyway. So thank you so much, Lauren, for being here, for running for office, for inspiring others to do the same. And just any last words you might have for Larkin as she considers you know, what might it look like to pursue her passion in addition to or instead of climbing this ladder that she's been on? Larkin, we are strong. We are very capable. We can do anything we set our minds to. So don't box yourself into a binary either or decision making process. I know that the same dedication and tenacity that you displayed when achieving so much at age 30 can be applied to this passion project that you have. So be fearless and go out and, and make the change um, because you will succeed. To learn more about Lauren, head to underwoodforcongress.com. And now it's time for today's Boss Moves Moment of the Week. My Boss Move of the Week is I actually decided to become a full-time author in the next three years. I'm leaving my day job in teaching because of the paycheck, because of people reasons, people reasons I love, but because of the paycheck. So that is my boss move of the week. And my name is Wynn. I'm calling from Aspen, Colorado. Congratulations, boss. You are killing it and inspiring me 
and so many countless others when you share your come up story. Do you have a boss move to share or a career conundrum that you want us to break down next? I want to hear from you. Give me a ring on the podcast hotline right now at 910-668-2677. So boss, what would pursuing a more purpose-filled career path look like for you? Have you ever taken a step down, so to speak, in order to take your career in a different direction? One that feels better for your soul, as today's caller put it? I want to hear about it. Hit me up on social media at Emily Aries, that's E-M-I-L-I-E, Aries like the zodiac sign, or Bossed Up Org on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And while you're in Facebook, make sure to join us in the Bossed Up Courage community where the best conversations happen after each episode. You can also find today's show notes on the Bossed Up blog at bossedup.org slash episode 34. And in the meantime, you know what I'm about to say. Keep bossing in pursuit of your purpose and together we'll lift as we climb.
let's face it, speaking up at work can be really hard to do, especially for women and women of color. When the stakes are high and you've already worked so hard to just be the only woman in the room and you want to get everything right, you want to have all your facts and figures accurate before making your voice heard, it's just so much easier to stay silent instead. Researcher Deb Chahansky calls this loss of voice phenomenon. And it actually emerges in adolescent women at greater rates than men. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. Self-silencing behavior can actually become an unconscious habit unless we consciously engage in practicing our assertive communication skills. And we here at Bossed Up have set out to help women like you do just that. Speak Up, my live assertive communication course is back open for enrollment, and we're kicking off a new cohort launching this June. Over the course of eight life-changing weeks, you'll have access to interactive online curriculum and live weekly practice sessions where you, Irene and I, and a cohort of fellow Speak Up bosses who are owning their voice, overcoming the social messages that have taught us to keep silent, and really learning to strategically and assertively communicate when it matters most, we'll actually have the practice time to rewire our brains, create new neural pathways, and build better habits when it comes to speaking up with confidence and precision and assertively communicating in the workplace. Learn more and enroll today to secure your spot at bossedup.org speakup. That's bossedup.org speakup.